All right, kids, you can follow Megan downstairs to practice your song uh, for uh, what they'll be singing for us in a couple of weeks. Uh, and uh, I'm going to introduce uh, our uh, speaker this morning. Brandon Bowler is going to bring the word to us this morning. I've known Brandon for a really long time. Uh, Brandon uh, and his family just moved back to Muncie uh, to pursue church planting, and uh, we're really excited about that. And so hopefully we'll get to hear uh, more from Brandon over the next few years as well. So uh, excited to have Brandon here uh, bringing the word to us this morning. So welcome, Brandon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do I bow? I don't know what to do when you clap. Uh, this is so much taller. It's awesome. Normally I have to bend over. It's great to be back in Muncie, y'all. Good to see some familiar faces. Um, let's turn our attention to the Word of God, though. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 38. 39, I'm sorry, all the way to the end of the chapter. Again, Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father God, your word is intended to encourage us. Help us not feel dismayed when we read it. Um, and help us to feel encouraged to pursue you in faith, God. We thank you for the death that Christ paid on our behalf and the life that he gives us in his own resurrection. In his name we pray, amen. Well, the hashtags ex-Christian and ex-evangelical, they're pretty tough ones to search and to read through. Have you guys heard these terms, ex-Christian and ex-evangelical? It's for people who uh, will self-describe their own uh, leaving the faith, right? Or uh, deconstructing their faith, some will say. In preparing to answer the question, who can separate you from the love of Christ, I read a sampling of these stories of people leaving the faith, and many of them began with some sort of upbringing in the church. Their parents had them go to church, something like that. And then they found, went on to find out some way which the religion of their youth that they could remember, it was somehow out of step with the way the world was, or it was ethically or philosophically contradictory, or they didn't like the way the church had acted in some way. But the striking thing about almost every single one of these stories was how every single one of them, or almost every single one of them, had some notable, precipitous life event that caused everything to unravel for them. It was something personal. Sometimes it was the death of a loved one, an occasion of abuse, or the divorce of a family member. And it was always something really challenging and hard. And it seems that all of these things in the end had separated them from the love of Christ. So it would seem. 
what we need to know is that terrible things can and do happen to Christian people. And what's going to happen to you when you face those hard things? Do you know? Are you sure? Does it scare you sometimes to think about what might happen when the worst comes your way? Do you ask yourself questions like, uh, why do we all still face such hardship even though we're redeemed? What's the point? Why do we have suffering in our lives? Does it have any meaning? Is there any purpose to my suffering? Or is it just arbitrary? And if my suffering doesn't have any meaning, then does my faith actually have anything it's resting on? Or maybe you've drawn a line somewhere that you know that if God were to allow that thing, that certain thing, to happen in your life, you're not exactly sure if you would still choose to believe in God. What is that circumstance in your life? What's that thing? What's that line that would cause you to doubt that God really loves you? That God is actually worth it? That God is actually God at all? Or in other words, what shall separate you from the love of Christ? That's the question that this text is having us consider. So Paul, he brings up in this text several examples of things that could separate us from the love of Christ, and they're all pretty severe. They're somewhere from starvation to persecution to death by sword from another human. Um, So Paul is talking about a bunch of circumstances, physical circumstances, like famine or sword. But he's also talking about an inward struggle that comes along with those physical circumstances, like hardship. you, You feel it in your soul, deep inside you. Some translations will use the word distress, as in like a persistent distress that that seems inescapable and you can't get away from it. Now, let's be clear, not many American Christians in the 21st century are being put to death or persecuted for their faith. Likely none of you have experienced quite this level of hardship, but that doesn't mean that you and I don't need this very passage because the, let's, let's look at some examples. The idea of nakedness, um, even though that was a physical reality, it also carries with it this idea of public shame, vulnerable exposure, which is absolutely a possibility for us today, isn't it? Famine carries with it the idea of not having your physical or financial needs met. And let's be real, there are definitely possibilities of overdrawing our account We're being uncertain at the end of every single month. So, while this passage is for an original context, right? Paul was talking to early Christians in Rome. It's also a text for us today. Because when we, too, are tempted to doubt or struggle against our faith, because God has seemingly given us more trouble than we can manage, we can turn to this section in Romans. But interestingly, none of the things that Paul lists have any power in themselves to separate us from the love of Christ. In other words, famine and swords can't actually separate you from God on their own, right? Swords can't slice through salvation, and you can't starve a soul because of lack of food. So I think the who in this question, who shall separate us, is actually us. Right? Can we separate from the love of Christ when we face hard things? 
What will you do when you face serious trouble as a Christian? Can you stand up to hardship and stand in the love of Christ? I think our responses on the whole will fall into three categories, and I'm going to list them today. One response that is not a faithful response, not a Christian response, and then two responses that are Christian. Normally it's the other way around. Have you ever noticed that there's like two non-Christian responses and then the one Christian response? That's a very Tim Keller-like thing to do. I'm doing it the other way. There's one non-Christian and two Christian responses. Okay, so option one, the non-Christian response, is to abandon the faith and stop trusting in God, right? This is what all those ex-evangelical and ex-Christian hashtags were doing. It's because God isn't providing for you in the way that you want or you think you need. And in one respect, I think that's understandable. I can wrap my, my head around the mindset that says, I can't continue to grapple with this hardship. I can't discern the meaning to it all. And if there's no point to the suffering, then there's really no point in my faith that I have faith in God. I mean, if I'm going to be suffering anyways, what difference does it make? If you're just looking out in our world, even in just our own city of Muncie here, but look at the world more broadly, just tally up the amount of injustices that are happening, the amount of natural diseases like cancer. We have drought that leads to famine. We have personal afflictions. We have war that doesn't make any sense. We have personal things like like the death of someone close to us. A child walking away from the faith. Any form of abuse at all. If any of those have happened to you, then then it's likely that you would doubt God's promise of blessing. You doubt that it could apply to you because you're not feeling it. Either God isn't there or he's asleep at the wheel. You don't really want to believe him anymore. But there's a problem with this mindset. There's a problem with doubting God's love for you because it doesn't leave you with any help. It doesn't leave you with more understanding and meaning in your pain. It leaves you with meaningless pain. You're just left with the suffering, with empty suffering. Your substitute is is not just like a negative claim about God. There's also this other side that has no way of justifying any hard things that happen to anyone. Well, what do I mean? I'm actually going to read quotes from two very prominent atheists. Actually, one is uh, a uh, descendant, uh, how do you call it? He's Jewish by birth, but he doesn't practice his faith. Um, And then the other one is Richard Dawkins, who maybe you've read one of his books. Um, So these guys are self-consciously doubting. They're aware that they are doubting the existence of God. And here's their perspective. Let me read this. This is from River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life by Richard Dawkins. Okay, so this is what Darwinism leads you with. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. 
Dawkins is, a, is an outspoken critic of Christianity, but he replaces your faith with a worldview that has no meaning, no justice, no virtue, no purpose, no hope. It's not better. But even that's a little bit abstract, a little bit heady, because I'm talking about, or Dawkins is talking about these philosophical categories of good and evil, the meaning of life. Let me give you a different example. This is from Dr. Yuval Harari. This is the, uh, the Jewish descendant who I mentioned. Um, in his book called Sapiens, uh, he gives his own empty take on human existence apart from God. Here's what he says. If we do not believe in the Christian myths about God, creation and souls, what does it mean that all people are equal. Evolution is based on difference, not equality. Every person carries a different genetic code and is exposed from birth to different environmental influences. This leads to the development of different qualities that carry with them different chances of survival. And so here he's basically saying that equality of all humans is a totally Christian thought. He admits that but that it doesn't reflect an, ev- an evolutionary scientific study. So what he's saying is that Christian belief and science don't line up. He says that, in essence, there is no equality that belongs to people. People are not equal. That's according to a godless view of creation. But it, it keeps going on. Uh, he says, unfortunately, the sapiens regime on earth has so far produced little that we can be proud of. We have mastered our surroundings, increased food production, built cities, established empires, and created far-flung trade networks. But did we decrease the amount of suffering in the world? No. Time and again, massive increases in human power did not necessarily improve the well-being of individual sapiens. And he's talking about humans. And usually caused immense misery to other animals. Sapiens are self-made gods with only the laws of physics to keep us company. We are accountable to no one. Wow. He's saying that humans have they've gotten better at inflicting damage. Right. And do you know who we have to answer for all of that? No one at all. Mm-hmm. There will be no justice for the harm that's been done. There will be no righting of wrongs. There will just be physics and us. And it's, I think, a frighteningly consistent viewpoint that if we and our works are nothing more than just material, then the moral arc of the universe is not actually bent towards justice, as MLK Jr. once claimed. It's, it's saying that cancer cells are just as reasonable in their existence as human beings are. And that racism is just an ongoing feature of the biological biological process of differentiation. That's what you have when you take God out of existence. And I say this, I want to be clear, not to rile us up against people who hold these viewpoints because Dawkins and Harari too, they're created in the image of God as well. And they deserve our respect and our love. And they probably go home to their spouses or or I think Harari actually is is married to a man uh, so... Uh, they go, yeah, that's a spouse, right? Uh, I go home and say, I love you <laughs> to their family members. They probably say that, and they probably don't mean that this is just a biological process intended to produce a stable society. They probably mean something other than just 
material chemical reactions. The reason I say all this is, is to disarm what unbelief really is. It's not rejecting things that are false or thoughtless or pitiful or cruel. Unbelief is rejecting things that are true. It's rejecting a meaningful existence. It's rejecting meaningful action. To believe in God alone, even in the midst of hardship, is to have meaning in every aspect of our lives, including the suffering. Christ, let's talk about him for a second. He's not cold. He's not unfeeling. He's not like the chaos of evolutionary chance. He's not rigid like the laws of physics are. He's a sympathizer with your pain. He's one who says, you aren't alone. I'm here with you. Anybody who has or is going through pain knows the significance of not being alone. But Jesus goes on further and he says, I agree that this is awful. It's so awful. All this suffering is so awful that I had to come and suffer with you. I had to die to put an end to it. It was a sad feature that many of these ex-Christian claims mentioned the church. They mentioned church leaders over and over and over again, but I didn't find one who said, I had a genuine relationship with Jesus who suffered along with me. In the abstract, in our day-to-day, it can, it can often feel like Jesus is far off in the midst of our suffering, but he really isn't. In reality, ex-evangelicals should warrant our sympathy. And I hope Christians, even in this room, can come alongside hurting people and introduce them to a personal Savior who's suffering with people in and through their brokenness. And if you're here at church today uh, and you've never considered that Christ offers you legitimate meaning and redemption in your life, know that it is free and it is easy to jump from category one, this non-faith response, into a category of faith today. It's free. You can do it now. And if you want that, uh, or if you'd like to chat, even if you have a disagreement and you interpret Yuval Harari differently than me, come and talk to me afterwards. I'd love to chat about it. Um, But, so that was option one, right? Now let's talk about option two. Remember, there are going to be two faith responses. This is the first one of those. So, option two is to endure the hardship, right? The trouble, the persecution, and so on. All the while, you're feeling the weight of the uncertainty. You're unsure whether this is going to be the breaking point for you. Again, let's be clear. Option two is a Christian response, and I'll show you why in a little bit. But you can go as a Christian through life doubting over and over again the love of Christ for you. If it's really there. Wondering if God could still love you in the midst of all the hard things. Questioning if it's worth it at all. And you might have a list, like we talked about at the beginning, of of several things that could separate you from the love of Christ if they were to happen to you. And maybe, here's a a short list of them. You might have said these to yourself. God, if you're real, why am I still stumbling in my faith? Why do I still have doubts? Why am I repeating the same sins over and over and over again? Why am I so ashamed all the time? You might have parental disappointment 
They might have been Christians, but they caused you deep hurt when you were young. If you're young, maybe other kids don't like you. Maybe you have desires that though you've asked God to take them away, they don't go away. Saying, I believe on Sunday doesn't keep the doubt from coming back on Monday. And many will live their entire life in Christ, hanging on for dear life, white-knuckling it, scared that there will be that final straw that breaks your faith. I'm going to recite a little bit from our Westminster Confession of Faith, um, which is an old document from the 17th century just saying what we believe as Christians. Um, And it recognizes that sometimes we're going to have our own doubts. Let, Let me read from it. True believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence in preserving it, falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet, they are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived, and by the which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair." That's old English. Let me make it more plain and modern. Assurance of your faith is not always felt. But it's always waiting for you to embrace you once again. And it's sustaining you in the meantime, even in ways that you don't notice. Your faith is stronger than you think because you think that you chose your faith? Uh Uh-uh. The grace of God chose you. Remember always that God chose you. You. Okay, so that was point two. That was a Christian response, the person who struggles and doubts while they're continuing to endure. Option three, on the other hand, is to receive assurance from the scriptures, just like y'all are doing right now today, um, and embrace it. This is is Paul's category as he's writing the book of Romans. Uh, In verse 38, he says he's convinced, he's certain. This is Paul's own act of faith and trust in what he's heard and seen and that he knows to be true. He's not trying to just explain facts like it's a math equation. He's, he's had to believe this stuff, right? Think of what Paul had been through. It's easy to see by his own life circumstances that he had been suffered a lot. He'd been beaten, he'd been shipwrecked, all these different things. He'd suffered pretty, every, pretty much every negative thing listed in this text, right? But yet he's convinced. I think it's interesting. Paul doesn't have any special sauce. There's nothing magic about Paul, which you don't have if you're a Christian too. What does Paul know that has him so convinced? Well, the answer is actually the thread that's traced through the entire book of Romans. I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but... It is a, it's a consistent thread. I'd encourage you, if you want a great place to understand how you can have assurance, read the book of Romans. It's an awesome place. But here's the point that has been traced through the whole thing. You are not 
the source of your salvation. God is. Your strong faith is not what gives you new life. Christ gives you new life. You aren't too weak because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For the one with a relationship to Jesus, there are no such thing as unbearable circumstances. Even in the worst circumstances, God works those together for your good. In all these things that I just mentioned, the operator is not you, it's God, right? Paul knows your security does not come from within you. Your security comes from outside to you. You point to something, you don't point to your own faith. You don't say, it's my faith or your doubt. You don't point to your own hope or your loss. You point to Christ as your security. So this third option, it's a possibility. It's held out to every Christian, right? Everyone is capable of it. But as I said before, option two, even with all your questions about the future and crumbling under difficult circumstances, it still has a security that comes from outside you, doesn't it? God's love for you isn't contingent upon your unwavering belief. That's why I can say that both options two and three are Christian responses. They're both Christian faith because both options are going to cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus works with that. Jesus works with that every time. But there's still one glaring thing in this, in this passage that uh, has me scratching my head quite literally. Um, it seems that Paul's making a mistake. How in the world can he be describing all of this as being more than conquerors? That doesn't make sense, right? He says that in verse 37. All I've done so far, if you've been tracking, is saying that you're secure in Christ through your challenges, but really, it kind of feels like being in survival mode, doesn't it? When the hard things come, it, it feels like you're just clinging on to Jesus and hoping for the best. Um, almost like you're water skiing, just clinging to the rope, right? But you don't have water skis on, you're just being drug along. That's kind of what it feels like. You try over and over again to get back up until somebody finally pulls you back in the boat. That's what you're hoping for. But what does it actually say in verse 30 says it, in 37? It says, in all these things meaning the famine and the sword and the hardship. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are not conquerors after the challenges. We're not conquerors alongside the challenges. Not once you can separate yourself from the challenges, once you can be triumphant over the challenges. But in these things, how can that be? For us to be conquerors, It literally means we have to be claiming victory over something, right? Not struggling under its weight. So how is it that we are more than conquerors? Even as we continue to face difficult challenges, including our own frailty as Christians. Well, remember, Paul is not talking just from these five verses here. I'm going to spout a couple relevant verses from the rest of chapter 8. This is just chapter 8, mind you. Keep in mind, the book of Romans has a lot of assurance in it. But this is a fuller picture of what kind of leads in here to verse 37. Um, Earlier in chapter 8, Paul says, But if Christ is in you, again, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. He says, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. He says the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And and this is the big one. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Not some things, not the good things. All things work together for good. So when you you put this whole picture together uh, with all these verses, there's more to our spiritual story than just what meets the eye, right? Our, Our real circumstances, what we're facing. There's something under the surface of those things. It's churning. It's moving us forward towards our final destination. In fact, sometimes it's, it's literally the opposite of our interpretation that hard things are bad, right? God uses all things to work together for good, including, including the death of his own son. How is that considered to be a good thing? And yet... It works together for our very salvation. It's totally subversive. It's totally rebellious that through death, Christ overcame death. He subverted death. And it's a similar way with our own trouble, our own hardship, our own persecution, our own famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. God can and is using those things to bring about the good for you. He's using your suffering to bring about the conquering and the reconciliation of the entire world. Every Christian who endures these things is part of the bringing of the kingdom of God. Under Christ's leadership, you're utilizing the tools of death to participate in the death of death. You are subverting pain. You are subverting suffering by living in Christ through it. You are showing pain and death who the boss is. Now, I'm a little bit nervous because this could have the effect of minimizing the circumstances you feel. I'm... Hear me saying that, that your circumstances are not in vain. Not that they're small, but they're not wasted. Your suffering is real, it's hard, but it matters to God. God is using it. There's a purpose to it. It will be worked together for your good. And I want to talk about the end of the story as well. Because in Revelation chapter 5, Christ is seen as a lamb. Right, And even in our own passage, uh, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And here we have a picture of a lamb. He's standing as though he had been slain. All those around him fell down and worshipped him. And soon after, uh, as the first of the seven seals in the book of Revelation is opened, he's seen again. And the author, John, says this, And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer 
We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, yes, but our faith is in the lamb who was slain. We wish we felt like more than conquerors, don't we? Uh, Through our hardships and in our trouble, but we are in union with the one who conquers through his death, and we are more than conquerors in him. He totally flipped this perpetual enemy named death against itself. Christ's hardship and trouble weren't the end of the story for him. So if you're in him, then your end result is victory. You are a conqueror, and nothing can separate you from his love. Let's pray together. Father God, it is uh, mysterious and somewhat almost magical, it seems, uh, that, that through your death we might be made conquerors, that you conquered the entire world through your own death. But God, we believe it, and we hope that this, uh, that this belief will uh, result in your glory and all these different things. But God, really, we're just clinging to the promise that it was you who sought out us, who you, you chased after us, and that we belong to you and that you won't let us go. Father, would we, uh, as tomorrow approaches and more hardships are going to come and we've got the holidays upon us, which are good times for some, but man, for some of us, they're really, really hard. Would we trust in that promise? That it was Christ himself who came and suffered, as we read in the Athanasius uh, section earlier, who took to himself a mortal body. Why? So that you might conquer death. And that we don't have to uh, wonder where our victory is. It's already been accomplished. Our victory is in you, Jesus, in your death and in your resurrection. We thank you so much for your son, Lord. Amen.